as we come to the word this morning, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be spending our time this morning in Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking through and looking at verses 15 through 23. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles to Colossians this morning, and as we start off this new year, I'd ask you this question. And the question is, where do you go to try and find spiritual fulfillment and victory? To what do you turn When it comes to the Christian life, I think we as believers can easily fall into two camps when it comes to answering this question. I think on one end of the spectrum, we tend to focus on the things that we do. Now, to be clear, God has clearly laid out means of grace by which we grow and change as believers. These things, however, are not usually the things that we turn to. Instead, we tend to add to these means of grace in order to show that we are good Christians. We add rules to our spiritual life, and as long as we follow those rules, we think that we're good. And in essence, this is what fundamentalism teaches. And in order to be a good Christian, you need to live the Christian life in a certain way. And we're not talking about specific areas of sin, Sin that the Bible clearly lays out. We're talking about areas of preference. So what music you listen to, what you wear, whether you watch movies or not, drink alcohol or not, do you separate from those who do, etc. And it is in these things, they would say, that, that if you live in this certain way, that's what brings spiritual fulfillment in our, in our lives. As long as we check off the boxes on their list, then we're good. I think this is one ditch we can easily find ourselves in that gives an appearance of holiness. I think another ditch on the other end of the spectrum is seeking and striving for the next experience. We live our lives seeking and questing for the feeling or this emotion, this ecstatic emotion of this feeling of connection with God. And once again, to be clear, emotions are a good thing. They're created by God They're a gift from God. However, we are not to be ruled by our emotions. Yet there are those in Christianity that if you come to a church service, you should have some sort of ecstatic experience. And if that kind of emotion is not displayed, or if you don't feel that, then God didn't really show up. And so week after week, whether we're talking about in church or in our own personal lives, it's that striving for that experience. And once again, if you don't experience it, then there is something wrong with you and you are not spiritually fulfilled. The question is then, but what is the true source of spiritual fulfillment and victory? What is the true foundation upon upon which we must stand to be able to grow as Christians? And to answer that question and those questions, we now turn to Colossians chapter 1. Now, to to fully understand the point of this passage, we've got to do a little bit of work. We need to understand the context just a little bit in which this letter was written. So it was written by Paul in his first imprisonment in Rome. And during this time, this is around the same time as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians and to Philemon. And he is writing to a church community in the city of Colossae. And to be clear, Paul didn't actually start any churches in that city. Most likely God used a man who's mentioned in Colossians, Epaphras, to do that. It would seem that he was saved during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, and he goes back to Colossae, and God uses him to start a church there. Now, this city was located on an important highway at a time when people were more easily mobile, able to travel. And so what happened in that city is it was resulted in a mixture of many ethnic groups. So it made a very diverse city, and the diversity of population and the exposure they've had to different ideas as people traveled through meant that Colossae was a place where many different religious and philosophical viewpoints came together and probably mixed. That means what is most likely happening in these churches is that there was a group within the church. Paul is speaking against a certain group within the church that was mixing ideas of different religions different philosophies together, and presenting it as the way to spiritual victory and spiritual fulfillment. Now, the letter doesn't make 
explicit claims to exactly what the philosophy is that he's speaking against, but we can get a picture of it by the way that he talks about it and by the way that it was affecting the church. So what can we determine then from this letter about what these false teachers are? False teachers in the church blending things together and teaching this within the church. And and it more clearly comes, I'm going to run through this list. So I just want you to hear and kind of hear some of the different ideas or things that seem to be surrounding this this teaching that was going on. It was a philosophy or way of thinking that was empty deceit. Paul describes it as empty deceit. He describes it as according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the the world. He said it was not according to Christ. Apparently they were advocating the restriction of certain kinds of foods, observing certain Jewish holy days. They practice asceticism, which is a severe discipline in the thought that that brings some sort of spiritual gain. They, they had some sort of focus on angels, and they made a big deal out of visions they had. They were filled with pride, and they promoted various rules as a mean for spiritual growth. That is quite a mix of different thoughts and ideas, all together teaching it as a way for spiritual fulfillment and growth within the body. But to put it simply, in other words, what they were teaching was that Jesus isn't enough. Christ is not the only source of spiritual victory. Christ is not the only source of spiritual fulfillment. They were actually questioning Christ's supremacy and sufficiency for the Christian life. They were saying, Jesus isn't enough. You need other spiritual forces. You need rules and regulations that ultimately full fulfillment or the fullness of a spiritual experience is not found only in Jesus. You actually need something more. And it is into this context that these verses come bursting on the scene that we're about to read in Colossians chapter 1. Is into our lives this morning as we start this new year that these verses shine forth for us to see. And as I contemplated what to preach this morning, I thought there could be nothing greater than to start with a reminder of Jesus and to remind our own hearts this morning that he is enough. He is enough this year for you and for me, and that's what we're going to see this morning. So the big, before we read this, the big takeaway, the big picture, the main idea this morning is very simply, because Christ is supreme, all we need is found in him. Because Christ is supreme, all we need is found in him. So let us read, I'm going to read Colossians, now our passage this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." So into the context we describe, Paul launches into these verses. And in these verses, to be really clear, we get a high view of Jesus. Paul goes right after the belief of these false teachers by making one thing crystal clear. Jesus is supreme above all things. Before Paul brings specific application to refute them, he goes after their theology. And that's what Paul always does, because Paul understands that you and I can only live rightly as a believer if we believe rightly. 
Our theology is the foundation of how we live as a Christian. We must believe rightly before we can obey rightly. So here, as Paul begins to refute the claims that Jesus is not sufficient, that Jesus is not enough, he starts with a clear declaration of the supremacy of Christ, and he breaks it up into two main sections, verses 15 through 17 and verses 18 through 20. And in these two sections, Paul makes two main points. First, he makes it really clear that Christ is supreme over creation. Second, that Christ is supreme over the new creation. And we're going to start with that first point this morning in verses 15 through 17 is Christ's supremacy over creation. And in doing so, Paul starts by saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Well, what does Paul mean when he says that Jesus is the image of God? When we think of an image, we tend to think of the recreate, a recreation of something that represents something else. I think a good example is like a copy machine. We, a copy machine can make a copy of a document, but that document itself, right, the, the thing that you make a copy of, what comes out of the copy machine is not the original. Well, recently I was talking with a company representative on the phone trying to get an original document for something. Now, it was very important that I get an original and I needed this document soon, so I wanted them to overnight it to me in the mail. I had just clearly communicated this when the person on the phone said, well, I can email you the document. I kindly told them that if they emailed me the document, then it wouldn't be an original, and I needed an original. Then they said, well, the fastest way to get it would be to actually fax it to you. Can I fax it to you? I took a moment to collect myself. And once again, I had to tell them, if they fax me the document, then it wouldn't be an original document, and I needed an original. Well, we eventually worked it out, but the point is that a copy or image of a document in that sense that we get through an email or through the fax or making a copy on a copy machine is not an original. It is a representation of an original, but not the same thing. And so the question is, because we tend to think of images that way, the question is, is that what Paul is communicating about Jesus? Is Jesus just a, a copy or representation of the real thing, but not the real thing himself? Well, we must not take our understanding of image and apply it to Jesus. That is not what Paul is saying here. In the New Testament, as he uses term, the original is always present in the image. The image shares in the reality. To be clear, this is not a feeble copy of the original, but a manifestation of the original itself. Paul will make this point in verse 19, for he will say, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Hebrews 1, chapter 3, it states that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And John says this clearly in John chapter 1, verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. Jesus makes the nature of the Father known because he is of the same nature as the Father. In John chapter 14, Philip asks Jesus this question. One of the disciples, he asks Jesus this question. He says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And what does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say to Philip? Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is the image of God because he makes the nature of the Father known. And he can do that because he is equal with the Father. In other words, whatever makes God who he is, his very nature, his very essence, it is the same as what makes Jesus God. Jesus is fully God. And that must be understood from the very outset, that there is only one God in three persons, 
Father, Son, and Spirit. They are all of the same essence. They exercise different roles in creation, different roles in salvation, but they are all of the same essence. They are all God, yet distinct persons in this profound mystery. To be really clear, this is a profound mystery that we cannot understand, fully comprehend, but we know it to be true because Scripture says it is true. And this is one of those key passages communicating this truth. Jesus is fully God. This is really important on the outset because this is the basis for his supremacy. Christ is supreme because he is God. What is the evidence of his supremacy? What is the evidence of Christ's supremacy? Well, the first evidence that Paul mentions in these verses is creation. That's how he continues his argument, and he does it with a very interesting phrase. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. What does this mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? To start, what it does not mean is that Jesus was created. As God, he is eternal. So whatever this means, it cannot mean that. If we understand it in that culture, in that culture, the firstborn son had a special status within the family. The firstborn son took precedence amongst the siblings. Another translation of this, I believe, that gets closer to the meaning of what Paul meant is based on the understanding of status or rank. And it it says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. What Paul is saying is that Jesus has superior rank and dignity over all creation. He has unique supremacy in creation as God. Why is Jesus supreme? And well, Paul answers that in verses 16 and 17. He says in verses, we'll start with verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So first, Paul clarifies Jesus' role in the creation of the universe. And this is evidence for for why Christ has supremacy in creation. First, he says all things were created in Christ. He says all things were created in Christ or by Christ. Paul's making a general statement here that God's creative work took place in reference to Jesus. He is the means by which all things were created. He is the point of creation. He is the focus of creation. All things were created in him. What does Paul mean by all things? Well, he clarifies. He clarifies what he means. He says, after all things, he says, in heaven. And on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I don't know about you, but that sure sounds like all things. All the visible world that you can see and observe was created in Christ. All of it. From the vastness of the universe to the very molecules that make up the material world. All of it was created in Christ. And just let the enormity, the enormity of that sit for a minute. You know, science and scientists spend their lives trying to figure out what makes up the material world and how it works from the planets and our solar systems to the workings of the nucleus of the atom. They're, they're continually learning new things, making new discoveries. You would think after all these years that maybe they would have figured it out. You would think with the advancement of technology and society over history that there wouldn't be more to learn, but nothing can be further from the truth. The more that we learn about the physical universe and the material world, the more we come to realize what we do not know. Even with all that we have learned, we still have only scratched the surface of what there is to know, yet all of it, all of it was created in Christ. And that should blow our minds. I mean, right now, I'm reading a book that my beloved wife got me for Christmas. And I know this will excite many of you, but it is a book about the cell. It is by a doctor who wrote a book about the history of how science discovered the cell and ultimately how the cell responds. He he deals with cancer, so how the cell responds to viruses, diseases, and cancer, so they can try to figure out the best ways to treat cancer. 
Well, prior to 2020, the scientific community thought they had a pretty good handle on how all this worked out in the body. Then the pandemic of 2020 came along and the pandemic turned the scientific community upside down. And the author, in his own words, he wrote, the pandemic energized immunology, but it also exposed gapping fissures in our understanding. It provided a necessary dose of humility. I cannot think of a scientific moment that has revealed such deep and fundamental shortcomings in our knowledge of the biology of a system that we had thought we knew. We have learned so much. We have so much left to learn. And this is just one example of how little we actually know of this world that God has created. Yet, yet all of it was created in Christ. This is not only true for the visible world, but also for the invisible. Paul describes the invisible as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. And to be clear here, Paul is not referring to the earthly, such as kings and kingdoms. So he's referring to the spiritual. This is all the spiritual realms, all the angels, all the spiritual forces that we cannot see. The existence of spiritual beings of all kinds and their importance in our lives was part of what the false teachers were teaching, but Paul makes it clear that Christ has supremacy over all of it, all spiritual forces, all spiritual beings, because they were actually created in him. They cannot be greater than him because they were created in him. There is nothing, whether visible or invisible, that is greater than Christ because they were all created in him. So Paul makes clear that all things, all things were created in him, but that's not it. He also says all things were created through Christ. He is the instrument by which God created all the visible and invisible universe. John makes a clear statement. He writes it right at the beginning of John's gospel. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I don't know of any clearer statement than this. Without Jesus, the word of God, there was not anything made that was made. All things, visible and all things were made through Christ. But not only were all things made in Christ and all things made through Christ, but actually all things are created for Christ. The goal and direction of all of creation is Jesus. Christ is the reason for all of God's creative work. Paul, Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty six. 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. One thing that children need to be taught from a very early age is that the world does not revolve around them. They are not the center of the universe. They are not the focal point of the existence of all that is around them. They fit into the universe, but the direction of it is not towards them. It does not exist for them. This is also a truth that is helpful for you, and it's helpful for me. Guess what? The existence of this world is not for you. It's not for your happiness. It's not for your fulfillment in the ways that we think about it. The, the goal of God in creation, the direction of God in the history of his creation is not ultimately for you. It just isn't. You are not the center of the universe. I am not the center of the universe. But Jesus is. As Christians, we are on this pilgrimage of life, longing for the day. We should be longing for the day when Jesus will return and make his glory known to everyone. When he will come and fully restore all that which has been broken. And when you, if you look at the end, when we live in the new heavens and the new earth, the whole of existence will be oriented to Jesus. His glory on display. His light for all to see. His perfections made known for all of eternity. If you're a Christian this morning, then you will ultimately spend all of eternity working and living and worshiping for the glory of Jesus. As Stephen Wellham writes of Jesus, he says, As the firstborn, Christ existed before creation, 
functioned as the agent of creation and therefore stands supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over creation because all of creation came into existence in him, through him, and for him. But he doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there when it comes to creation. Christ is not only supreme over creation because it was all created in, through, and for him. He is also supreme over creation because all of creation is sustained in him. He says this in verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul says that Christ is before all things. Previously, Paul had emphasized Christ's supremacy over creation as the firstborn of creation, referring to his rank. And here he is referring uh, to, that Christ not only has, or has supremacy in rank, but also in time. Paul here is emphasizing the pre-existence of Christ. Jesus is before all things in time and in rank. He existed eternally before all things were created and is above all created things. And the evidence is not only that it was all created in him, but it continues to exist because of him. All things hold together in Christ. Theologically, we would call this God's providence, or this is one aspect of God's providence. In Millard Erickson, he defines it this way. He says that this aspect of God's providence is the continuing act of God by which he preserves in existence the creation he has brought into being. God did not create everything through Christ and then step back. He didn't wind it up like a clock and then let it go on its course without him. He is intimately involved in his creation, so much so that all of it would cease to exist. It would cease to hold together if it were not for the active will of Jesus on behalf of creation. And Erickson gives a good, good illustration to make this point. This is like a tool such as a power saw, which requires continuous application of pressure to the switch in order for the saw to continue working. If a person operating the machine fails to continue to apply pressure, it comes to a halt. It cannot continue unless someone constantly wills it to function and takes the necessary action. And this is what Christ is doing right now with our world. As you are sitting here this morning, and you're listening to the sermon, you're sitting in your chairs, you're thinking, you're feeling, you're breathing, you're continuing to exist. It is only because of the active intervention and involvement of Jesus. The same is true of all creations. The planets continue in their orbits. The molecules hold together and exist because of the ongoing, active, sustaining work of Christ. And this should overwhelm every one of our hearts and minds this morning. Christ is supreme in all of creation because it was all whether we're talking about seen or unseen things, were created in him and through him and for him and continue in its existence because of him. How could there be anything, anything greater in all of creation other than Christ? That is Paul's first point this morning is Christ's supremacy over creation. But he transitions in verse 18. He comes to a transition point, and he makes a point. Not only is Christ supreme over all of creation, but he is supreme over the new creation as well. Paul makes a transition here from creation to redemption, and he, he writes in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He says that not only is Christ supreme in the created universe, but he is also supreme in the assembly of new covenant believers. He is the head, which is the governor member of his body. And we know from Paul's other writings that he uses this metaphor of the body of Christ to refer to or as a picture of the church. Jesus, as the head, controls the body. Jesus, as the head, provides for its life and its sustenance. The body cannot exist or function without the head. So the body of Christ, 
his bride, the church, cannot exist without the head, which is Christ himself. He is of supreme importance and rank within the church. That is what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the beginning. This phrase indicates primacy, and it applies to the people that Christ has secured. And Jesus has done this because he is the firstborn from the dead. On this verse, the commentary writes, this meaning is not only that all things came into being through the firstborn, but that all things are born anew through him. The first creation in the Son points forward to the new creation in the Redeemer. And the original dependence of all things on the Son is thus a basis for his later seizure of power and for redemption in him. All things are born anew through him because... Because he has been raised. He is the firstborn from the dead. The the resurrection of Christ is the basis for our hope as believers. We know all that has been promised in Jesus will happen because Jesus has been raised. He has conquered death and with it sin and its consequences on our behalf. Paul will make this point clear in verse 20 that it is through the work of Christ and redemption that we are made in right relationship with the Father. And as verse 18 ends, Paul sums up all his argument to this point by saying that because because Christ is supreme in creation and redemption, he is preeminent in everything. He holds the highest rank. There is nothing in all this universe, whether seen or unseen, that has superiority over Christ. Nothing. Well, how is Christ supreme in redemption? Paul answers this question, verses 19 and 20. He says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Remember, one of the claims of these false teachers was that true fullness of spirituality, fullness of fulfillment, could be found by following their philosophy and their rules they had set up. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In response to this claim, Paul here in verse 19 says emphatically that no, the full spiritual life is not found in human philosophy and tradition. The full spiritual life can only be found in Jesus. That is because Jesus, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul expresses the same idea in Colossians 2 in verses 9 and 10. He said, he's going to write, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This verse pushes back against the claims of the false teachers that the fullness of our spirituality can be found in other things. Paul emphatically is screaming, No! The fullness of God dwells in Christ. If that's true, how can there be any spiritual fulfillment in anything other than Jesus? Because the fullness of God is in Him. One day, one day the preeminence of Christ will be on full display for all the universe to see. And here in verse 20, Paul makes clear that this Jesus, the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily, the one who has supremacy over all the created universe, as well as supremacy over all the new creation of this church, this Jesus will one day reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. This is talking about eschatological restoration of creation. This is looking at it on a global or universal scale. And Paul makes a similar statement in in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, he, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to one day unite all things in Christ, 
to reconcile all things to Christ, to bring to fulfillment the plan of God to redeem and restore all things. Well, how does Jesus accomplish this sort of global, massive reconciliation of all things? Well, this is accomplished by Christ as he makes peace by the blood of his cross. This cosmic restoration and renewal is accomplished through the completed work of redemption of Christ on the cross. Through the work of Christ on the cross, through the sacrifice of his own life, Jesus not only secures the salvation of all the people he has chosen, but also for all of creation itself. This is the direction that history is heading. All of history is heading towards this time when God will restore all that Adam lost. Adam's sin not only affected every single person who has ever been born, but it affected the very creation itself. And that original sin tainted and corrupted all of it. Because of Adam's sin, death and decay affect not just people, but the rest of creation. Paul describes it this way in Romans 8.22. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This creation, this world that we live in is groaning. It's waiting to be restored to what God had always intended it to be. And in the fullness of time, God will restore the entire universe to what he had always intended it to be in the original creation. He will restore and he will reverse all the effects of Adam's sin. He will reconcile all things in Christ. He will unite all things in Jesus. And Christ has accomplished this future result through his work of redemption on the cross. This, dear brother and sister, is the Jesus we have come to worship this morning. This is no small Jesus. This is no weak Jesus. This is not an insufficient Christ. I think it is so common, I know in my own heart, as we go through this life and we forget the reality of our Lord and Savior, who he really is. The circumstances of this life, our own weaknesses, make us forget the majesty and the glory, and the wonder, and the power of Jesus. I feel so, to be clear, I feel so inadequate to the task this morning. I feel like I cannot adequately express in words the reality of Christ that Paul is giving us this morning. And it's that reality that I want us to soak in. Jesus Christ is supreme over all things, all things. And the evidence of this is that Christ is preeminent in his work of original creation. He's preeminent in his continuing work of sustaining that creation. He is preeminent in his work of the reconciliation of all things which he accomplished through his own blood on the cross. What is the point of this? What is the point? Why does Paul here, he gives this really high Beautiful, amazing picture of Jesus. It's for this one simple reason. If Christ is supreme over all things, then he is sufficient for every spiritual need. If Jesus has supremacy in the creation of the universe, if he has supremacy in the new creation of the community of believers, then total spiritual victory, total spiritual fulfillment can only be found in him. Why would we look anywhere else? Why would we turn to anything else? Why would we listen to empty and deceitful philosophies that give an appearance of godliness but can do nothing, can do nothing to help you either know Christ or grow to be more like him? Paul says it best. He says it best later in his letter here. He says in Colossians 2.20 through chapter 3, verse 4, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, 
and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, this morning, dear brother and sister in Christ, you need nothing more than Jesus. You need nothing more than him. So what's our application this morning? Found here in Colossians is very simply stand firm. How do we respond? We should stand firm. Where does Paul go from here? Well, as he does, he, he always goes, he always transitions from theological truth to practical application. So he takes this high Christology that he's just given and he applies it to you and he applies it to me this morning and he does so in verses 21 through 23. So I'm going to read verse 21 through 23. He says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, Paul, he, he takes it from a broad view of Christ's work of reconciliation for all of creation, and he focuses it on you, and he focuses it on me. And if you stop and think about that for a moment, it is quite an amazing truth all in itself. Right? All of creation, seen, unseen, created in, through, and for Jesus. He's actively causing creation to continue to exist every single moment of every single day. And Christ's work on the cross will culminate in the reconciliation, restoration of all the entire universe. And in that day, the supremacy of Christ, his rule and his reign over all things will be on display for all of creation to see for all of eternity. And yet Christ not only is reconciling all of creation to himself, but he is about the work of restoring individual lives. The same Christ who is currently holding all the universe together is reconciling you and reconciling me. And as Paul makes clear in verse 21, there was absolutely nothing in you or I that was worth reconciling. Every single one of us from the moment we were conceived, was estranged from God. That's what this alienated. It says you were once alienated. You are estranged from God. Our relationship with God was severed. And not only were we estranged in our relationship with him, but we were actually actively hostile toward God in our minds. This is personal hostility of, of one person towards another. It's an inner disposition of hatred towards someone else that results in outward acts of hatred. And in this case, everyone in their natural spiritual condition has an inner disposition of hatred, hatred towards God. Before we were saved, we were actively hating God. Nobody. Nobody is ambivalent towards God. Nobody. And as those born with the sin nature, we all actively hated God in our inner being. And this was made evident through our evil deeds. Every evil thought, word, action was an openly rebellious act against the God we hated. Our disposition towards God and our natural spiritual condition is one as an enemy. We are enemies towards God. And yet, and yet, even while we were actively enemies of God, Christ still came and through his work on the cross reconciled us to God. The verb here, has reconciled, is in the passive. The use of the passive means that you and I, in our state of open hostility and hatred towards God, have no part in our reconciliation through Christ. 
We are reconciled to God through Christ because of the active work of Jesus. We add nothing to our salvation. It is all of God and none of us. No matter how many times I hear this truth, I think of this truth, or I meditate on this truth, it is absolutely astounding to me that the same Jesus who is supreme Lord and ruler over all the universe came on the cross and has actively reconciled me to God. Me, who's an, who was an enemy of God, deserving of condemnation, and yet God has shown his love to me in that while I was yet a sinner, in open rebellion toward him, he came and he died for me. Every single one of us should be smothered under the enormity of that kind of love. We should be humbled by that kind of unconditional, unearned, unmerited love that has been demonstrated by the one who is supreme. But it doesn't stop there. That, that reconciliation actually has a purpose, has a future goal in mind. And this truth here, by the way, is just astounding to me. Jesus has reconciled us in order to, or for the reason of presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is looking forward to the future. We are to be presented before Christ on the final judgment as a bride, morally pure, blameless because of the payment of Christ on our behalf. Paul says this also in Ephesians 5, in verses 25 through 27. He writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. We who are already holy in status now, shall be holy in reality then. And the evidence, the evidence of Christ's work of redemption that will be on display for the entire universe to see is a pure, spotless bride that Christ has redeemed and reconciled through his own work on the cross. Part of the future glorification of Christ will be as every believer in this room, as part of the body of Christ is glorified and presented as the prize for which Christ died. The magnificence of God will be on display through you as evidence of the completed work of redemption. Can you wrap your minds around that this morning? Paul has just beautifully pictured a Jesus who is God, who is of first rank and order and supremacy in all the created realms, both visible and invisible, who has supremacy in the new creation of the redeemed, which he will put on display for all the universe to see in glory when he is presented with his pure and spotless and blameless bride. And all of you this morning, every single one of you who are children of God are part of that bride. Why, why am I driving this point home so much? What, what's the, why the focus here? Because if this is the goal, and if this is the direction of every single individual believer, then why would we think that we can find any sort of spiritual fulfillment and experience anywhere other than Jesus? What should our response to this truth be? Well, Paul says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. What, what should our response be? It should be one of steadfastness. We should remain. We should continue. We should keep going. We should not falter from the faith. When Paul says that we should remain stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, he's using the imagery of a foundation. The life of the believer is one being settled on the firm foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If this is true of our lives, then we will be unmoved. This is an unmoving settledness upon the firm foundation of Jesus. 
Earlier in the service, you've read the passage in Matthew where Jesus talks about two different foundations. And Paul, in verse 23, is describing that person who has built his house upon the solid foundation of Christ. And just as these Christians in the city of Colossae heard the truth of the gospel, we have been confronted with its truth this morning. This is the truth that Christ is the Lord over all the universe. He is supreme in all creation because all creation was created in, through, and for him. He sustains creation by his own power, and he's also supreme over the redemption and reconciliation of all creation, including you, including me. And it is this Lord and Savior who has reconciled you to God through his own flesh by his suffering and his death on the cross. And it is this same Lord who conquered death by rising from the dead, securing for himself a people who would one day present to himself as a holy bride, putting on display the wonder and majesty of his character for all the universe to see for all of eternity. How could we ever think that spiritual victory could be found in anyone else? How could we ever think that spiritual fulfillment could be found in anyone else. Well, there are some of you here this morning who do not know this Jesus. You do not have a relationship with this Jesus. And if that is you this morning, then one day, to be really clear, one day you will bow your knee before Christ. You will acknowledge the supremacy of Christ. You will do it on that day. Although on that day, it'll be too late to save you. So I plead with you this morning, if that is you, do not wait. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and place your trust in this Jesus who has been presented to you this morning. And for those of us who already know Christ this morning, I would just encourage you, continue in the faith. Keep running the race. Do not be persuaded by those in the world who would say that you can be spiritually fulfilled in anything other than Jesus. There is nothing and no one else in this world who can satisfy the deepest need of your soul. Only Christ. If you are here this morning, he saved you for a purpose. He saved you for a reason. He is preparing you for the day in which you will be presented as part of his perfect spotless bride in order for his glory of redemption and reconciliation to be on open display for all to see. That is what God has destined for you. You who feel so unlovely in your current sin struggles. You who feel like you don't know how you're going to get out of bed in the morning. You who think that God made sort of some sort of mistake when he saved you, you who think that you could never do anything of value or of worth as a child of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. So be encouraged this morning and stand firm on the foundation of Christ. Because Christ is supreme, all we need is found in him. Therefore, stand firm. Let us pray.